Section 33 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kieran Metz. Criminal Investigation, a Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers, and Lawyers, Volume 3, by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. Chapter 20. Serious Accidents and Boiler Explosions. Section 1. General Considerations. In the latter part of this chapter, we shall offer some detailed information in connection with the explosion of steam boilers. But even in doing so, we treat that class of accident really as a type. The present general observations will be found equally applicable to a boiler explosion, a railway smash, a collision at sea, the collapse of a new building, or any other catastrophe of a similar nature, proceeding from preventable causes. In every case, what has to be done is to find the preventable cause that has not been prevented, and the person responsible for that negligence. We should permit no shifting of responsibility. We must fix it on the proper shoulders. Scapegoats cannot be tolerated. The first necessity in this connection is that the authorities should be awake to the danger and do all in their power to prevent similar accidents. So far as preventive precautions are concerned, there are plenty, sometimes indeed too much and too many. Take for instance the case of a boiler. The public test may be too exacting and may even so weaken the boiler as to render it unfit for its work, the result being an explosion at an early date. Of course, some negligence on the part of the attendants must be allowed for, but the fact remains that the boiler might have long done good work but for the injury caused by the government trials. As to punishment, it is generally wholly insufficient. At least the instances of anyone being made responsible for culpable negligence in superintendents are so rare that we can only ask why those acts of carelessness, which are always, or almost always, the cause of such catastrophes are allowed to go unpunished. Any one of us who has been called upon to interpose officially in an accident of this nature knows how things befall. When the disaster has occurred and the experts have reported to the authorities, the investigating officer will betake himself to the spot, but rarely will he hit the moment of the expert's visit. It will be disadvantageous indeed for the investigating officer to waste time by summoning his experts in due form and awaiting their arrival. Once the report received, the investigating officer ought immediately to start for the scene, leaving full instructions as to what arrangements, bondabost, should be made and as to summoning experts. If the investigating officer remains rooted to the scene of the catastrophe, he is assailed on every side. The destruction is generally great, dead bodies lie about, the groans of the wounded are heard everywhere, the scene of the accident presents a terrible chaos, and the whole is a spectacle of desolation, disorder, and confusion. Then the proprietors of the works, the engineers, the traffic superintendents, the architect, the contractor, etc., are quickly in evidence and exhaust themselves in representing to the investigating officer who of course knows nothing about it, that this disaster is the greatest chance that ever happened. Or, if one of the attendant workmen has been found dead, 
in throwing all the blame on the negligence of the poor devil. The flood of talk never ceases until the investigating officer, by some apt technical questions, shows these gentlemen that they have not to do with an absolute idiot. If this succeeds, they change their tactics. Instead of talking nonsense to the investigating officer, they furnish him with inaccurate information, the object being to clear everybody, at least those still in the land of the living. But such explanations are not protracted. There is suddenly a great hurry to clear away, of course, for the sake of safety. The investigating officer is assured that no delay is permissible to avoid a fresh explosion, a flood, a fire, the fall of a wall, etc. And as a last resort, there is the excuse of the missing, who may be buried in the ruins and must be rescued forthwith. But in reality, the object is only to withdraw from the eyes of the authorities and the experts, the corpora delecti, the rotten sleepers, the flaws in a rail or girder, the defective pieces of boilerplate, the bad setting, the overweighted safety valves, if indeed these are not wanting altogether. At the least, it is hoped by these proceedings to obscure and befog the whole affair, so that the experts may be unable to pronounce a definite opinion as to who is responsible. There are, of course, we admit, honorable exceptions where mistakes are frankly admitted, but they are rare enough. By far the most difficult problem for the investigating officer is as to what should be done when formal permission is requested thus to clear away debris for the sake of safety. On the one hand, the investigating officer cannot take upon himself the responsibility of vetoing such operations which may be absolutely necessary, or at least advisable. Nor, on the other hand, can he rightly consent to the disappearance before his very eyes of the evidence necessary to bring home the guilt to the proper quarter. If the investigating officer has good grounds for suspecting any such design, he should boldly inform those clamoring for clearing away of his suspicions and tell them straight that they will be held responsible for future developments, that a report will be prepared of everything that happens as it happens and that the experts will be consulted later on as to this pretended urgency. In the majority of cases, he will be told that these operations are not actually so very urgent as all that and need not be commenced at once. In the alternative, the measures announced must be carried out without fail. Every occurrence will be enshrined in a report, and above all, no object, even the most insignificant, must be permitted to disappear. The less the investigating officer knows about such matters, the more incumbent it is upon him to frustrate any attempt at deception. He must also be on the watch lest anything be concealed or unnecessarily mutilated, so that any subsequent inquiry may be rendered futile or at least exceptionally difficult. If everything has been carefully recorded and no material objects have disappeared, the situation will not be over-obscured by this work of clearing away, and the experts will be able to form their conclusions almost as well as if they had been there from the start and had witnessed the whole march of events. As soon as possible, the investigating officer should interrogate, if only summarily, everyone who can furnish any information as to the occurrence. After having, of course, entrusted the surveillance of the scene of the accident to trustworthy subordinates. The investigating officer will do well not to commence his inquiry by examining managing directors, architects, contractors, engineers, 
and other special employees. Naturally, one would wish to do this so as to possess a competent and enlightening opinion, serving as a foundation for subsequent questions. Most convenient, but far from prudent. We thus put ourselves in the way of starting with preconceived ideas. The well-informed and scientific witness always seeks to give the affair a sort of twist, and even at times tries to coach his subordinates as to the real cause of the accident. When these subordinates, in their turn, get into the witness box, they cannot often distinguish between what they have themselves seen and what their boss has told them they saw. These subordinates, assistants, workmen, chauffeurs, coolies, etc., generally desire to tell the truth and give valuable evidence, if not previously influenced. They should therefore be questioned first and quickly. They are also naturally those who have actually seen happenings on the spot and can give most useful hints. Otherwise, the catastrophe will generally come to be laid at the door of one of these very subordinates. The primary cause, it is true, may often be brought home to one of these understrappers, but the real question becomes, is he the man truly responsible? The investigating officer will have to find out, by his own inquiries or from experts, what the scapegoat had to do, what he was capable of doing, and how far he was competent to perform the task allotted to him. An inquiry of this kind thus differs much from that in which the investigating officer is usually engaged. Many things must be taken into consideration to fix responsibility on the proper shoulders. Not unfrequently, it will turn out that the man was overworked, either through having to attend to his engine too many hours a day, or through having too many different things to look after. Again, it may be found that while the employee was well trained for his work, and had even passed examinations therein, he had not sufficient practical experience of this particular job, or was new to the engine and had not yet learned its fancies and failings. Perhaps it may come out that the man has actually reported faults and that his warnings have been disregarded. Often enough, the verdict, boiler explosion, want of water, fault of the engineer, although the engineer may just before have complained of the deficient supply and been told to mind his own business. In all technical undertakings, mines, factories, steam engines, and boilers by land or sea, the blame is always thrown on some wretched coolie. The real cause should be looked for in insufficient staff, lack of training, want of supervision, and at the bottom of all, we find cheese pairing and false economy. The most difficult and important task is entrusted to the cheapest workman. Thus, the investigating officer has far from completed his labors when he arrives at a conclusion that a workman has made a mistake. He must discover who has set the man to do the job, whether he was really qualified for it, whether his knowledge, intelligence, strength, working time have not been exaggerated, and whether there has been sufficient supervision. If the investigating officer can discover a gap and the person responsible, therefore, that is the guilty man. Section 2. Technical Problems Apart from these general considerations, we have deemed it useful, selecting boiler explosions as a type, to add a few technical details. The same method of inquiry will apply, mutatis mutandis, to all serious catastrophes of the nature now under consideration. Boiler explosions have one feature rendering them specially worthy of study whether occurring in factories, railway trains, steamships, etc. 
They are, despite the march of science, exceptionally frequent and singularly destructive. German statistics, extending over 11 years, give an average of one death and two wounded for each explosion. Our object is to assist the investigating officer in that critical moment when he is awaiting the arrival of the expert or interrogating the witnesses and accused. We assume that he has at least some superficial knowledge of the mechanism and treatment of boilers. In this connection, we have relied mainly on the work of Adolf Peschka, Boiler Explosions and How to Prevent Them. An old work, it is true, but still the clearest and most to the point we have come across. His thesis is that such explosions are not the effect of mysterious causes which we know not how to control, but really demonstrate the ignorance and gross carelessness of those interested. The causes, he says, can be discovered only when we know the antecedent circumstances. What was the condition of the boiler, the level of the water, the steam pressure just before the accident? In fact, when we know everything about the boiler and have examined its fragments. In support of this view, we may cite the report of the Manchester Steam Boiler Association. It is difficult to imagine a case that cannot be explained by natural and well-known laws, and could not have been prevented by well-known and approved methods. Hence it follows at once that in every explosion some human agency, some man, is at fault. Any a priori theory as to luck or unexplainable causes must be rigorously discarded. It is also established that the cause can be determined, and that as a rule, by very simple investigations. The above association, which inspects and tests all the steam boilers in England, gives the following as the primary causes of explosions. Defects in construction, want of water, want of pressure gauges, overpressure, formation of deposits in the boiler. E. Ship of the Steam Engine School, Dresden, thus classifies 168 cases investigated by him. 29 faulty construction, 9 bad or worn out material, 48 deficiency of water, 19 overpressure, 49 weakness of the plates, 7 careless attendants, 6 incrustations, 2 explosion of a neighboring boiler, 1 explosion of gas, 1 cause undiscovered. Other authorities, as Paul Lager and Bichard Flimmer, suggest other cognate causes, but all agree on the one main point, that negligence and ignorance are the primary causes of all such catastrophes. Section 3. Causes of Boiler Explosions In dealing with these, we must first dismiss those false theories which ignorant and incompetent people are always pushing to the front to screen their own ignorance and incompetence. A. False theories. 1. Theory of an explosive gas. This suggests that the water being decomposed by contact with the plates of the boiler, the disengaged hydrogen unites with the acid forming an explosive gas, which, catching fire from the plates of the boiler, suddenly explodes. 2. Theory of electricity. This is always propounded with a certain amount of mystery and is, for that reason, more readily accepted. The suggestion is that by the contact of the steam with the boilerplates and other metals and under other influences, immense quantities of electricity are produced, hence the catastrophe. 3. Theory of the spheroidal state. 
This theory depends upon the phenomenon first recorded in 1752, that a drop of water on a red-hot metal plate preserves its spheroidal form, rotates on its axis, and evaporates very slowly. As the metal cools, the rapidity of evaporation increases, and at last, when the temperature has been reduced to a certain point, the liquid suddenly evaporates in a mass. This is now shown as a common school experiment using an iron spoon. This phenomenon has been employed to explain boiler explosions. It was supposed that, either through overheating or calcareous deposits, a bed of vapor is formed between the water and the walls of the boiler, so that the whole mass of water may be considered as a slowly evaporating drop. Assuming that then, from some cause or other, cooling, sudden or slow, supervenes, or that by some external shock the spheroidal form of the water is destroyed, rapid vaporization will ensure, followed by explosion. 4. The theory of the cold water current. This theory assumes that, in certain conditions, a jet of cold water suddenly striking the hot boilerplates will cause vaporization. Arago was the first to point out the inaccuracy of all these hypotheses, but the exertions of a long line of scientists has been necessary to complete his work. So tenacious is the grip of false theories once started. Colburn, Schwartz, Schaffudel, de Berg, Kirschweger, Hermann, Ochelhausen, Butte, and others have shared in this task. Yet we can date the general acceptance of true scientific theories only from the labors of Paget, circa 1865. B. Admissible theories. The following may be accepted as admissible theories, and it will be seen at once that none are due to so-called bad luck or pure accident. 1. The chemical action of the fuel. 2. The chemical action of the water. 3. The mechanical action of heat. And 4. The mechanical action of steam pressure. 1. The chemical action of the fuel. The simple heating of the boiler injures the iron but slowly. It is otherwise if through negligence the plates are heated red hot. In the latter case, the surface of the metal is transformed into a crystallized crust composed of oxidized iron and oxide of iron. This crust falls off, and at each successive overheating, the boiler is sensibly weakened. Further, when the coal contains white or yellow pyrites, the sulfur contained in the pyrites changes the surface of the iron into a friable iron sulfate, which accelerates crystallization. In every case, repetition of the overheating must eventually end in a rupture of the walls of the boiler. Not infrequently in boiler explosions we find portions of plate, thus often overheated, breaking up under very feeble blows with a hammer. It must never be forgotten that when a boiler becomes red hot, the cause, always preventable, is want of water, the formation of incrustations, or sedimentary deposits. 2. Chemical action of the feed water. The water fed into the boiler is for the most part transformed into steam, but the solid matters contained in it are precipitated to the bottom or against the walls, gradually forming a solid crust, called incrustation. Now this crust prevents direct contact between the water and the iron, and being a very bad conductor of heat, permits the iron to become red hot. 
On the other hand, the water contained in this non-conducting envelope requires the application of more heat. Partial exhaust follows, whence the water may come in contact with the red-hot walls, and this partial but sudden cooling greatly injures the boiler. Naturally, we find today all kinds of inventions to prevent this evil, but none of these can remove the solid bodies from the water. At the best, they can substitute for the incrustation when forming, a sediment which is not so destructive. Some present inconveniences of their own. Among the many devices are enameling, apparatus for intercepting the solid particles, and countless compositions whose aim is to eliminate them. Of many, the components are known, others are kept secret. The true cure is regular cleaning of the boiler, but the investigating officer will also do well to inquire if any and what preventive has been employed, and to make sure that there has been no negligence in its use. Solid substances are frequently contained in the water in considerable quantities, a matter of some importance in certain cases. The investigating officer should therefore, in every instance where there is doubt as to the cause of the explosion, secure for analysis a specimen of the water used. We may add that many authorities consider the presence of greasy substances in the water as most dangerous. The investigating officer should therefore take note of the presence of fatty or oily matters in the condensed water. Besides the risks to which a boiler is exposed internally, there are others external. When the exterior walls are in direct contact with the atmospheric air, oxidation will naturally take place, but so slowly in practice as to be almost negligible. But where the boiler is furnished with casings which favor the collection of water at certain points, this oxidation may become serious. The water thus collected comes from outside, but in certain cases the water escapes from the inside through defects in the boiler. In this instance there is continuous rusting and consequent weakening, all the more dangerous as it is concealed from view. 3. Mechanical action of heat. Here the metallic envelope of the boiler is in continual movement owing to alternations of heat and cold. The degree of heat from the firebox cannot always be the same. Currents of air, opening of doors, etc. continually cause new contractions and expansions. This continuous action weakens the boiler, especially if the walls be thick, as the exterior surface expands more than the interior. This is especially dangerous when the feed water is so introduced as to pass direct into the heated chamber. At the points so touched, the metal will in time crack leading inevitably to a rupture sooner or later. 4. Mechanical action of steam pressure. If the pressure of the steam in the boiler were always the same, the walls would be subject to a progressive but constantly equal expansion, so that there would be no risk of giving way at any point. But the pressure varies, owing to inequalities of heating, variations in water supply, opening doors, etc. Thus, the same thing happens to the plates as occurs to a thin slip of white metal which we bend with our fingers and which ends by breaking where thus worn out. But an explosion can occur only when the pressure has been suddenly increased by an enormous and rapid release of steam. This takes place when the pressure on the water is suddenly diminished, thus permitting great masses of water to be vaporized. We thus arrive at the apparently paradoxical conclusion that a diminution of steam pressure increases the pressure. 
The explanation is simple. Water boils normally at a temperature of 100 degrees Celsius or 212 degrees Fahrenheit. But the boiling point is raised by an increase of pressure, steam, or other. Suppose then a mass of water has been heated to 106 degrees Celsius or 222.8 degrees Fahrenheit without having boiled. The sudden lowering of the pressure will produce boiling and in consequence considerable disengagement of steam. The steps are as follow. A. An opening. B. Escape of steam. C. Lowering of pressure on the surface of the water. D. Sudden release of large quantities of latent steam. E. Explosion. If it be asked how the opening is made, we can only say in many ways, perhaps by the careless turning of a blow-off cock or safety valve, perhaps by a crack or tear in the boiler. But the primary cause in every case will be carelessness or imprudence. The subjoined quotations from a judgment delivered in appeal by the Sessions Judge of Kudapa District, Madras, on 1st October 1906, seem most apposite to the remarks in the first section of this chapter. The facts are simple. The whole, or a considerable portion, of a mixed train was left standing between two stations on the Madras Railway. According to the prosecution, the engine driver, finding he had run short of water, uncoupled his engine and ran on to the next station, leaving his train on the line. According to the defense, the couplings broke and the driver ran on with a dozen wagons, believing his whole train was behind him. Whichever theory be true, the assistant station master supposed that the whole train had arrived and consequently gave the signal line clear to the last station. This enabled the Bombay Madras Mail to pass, which, running at a very high speed, dashed into the portion of the mixed train left on the line. Several passengers and railway servants were killed. A railway board inquired, and as a result, the head guard of the mixed train and the assistant station master were charged criminally. In his concluding remarks, the district judge says, The obligation imposed by government on all railway administrations to hold a joint inquiry over every railway accident attended with loss of life is intended with a view to eliciting the cause and full particulars of such accidents, with a view to framing rules to minimize such accidents. In this matter, the joint inquiry held by the different heads of department of the Madras Railway Administration has signally failed. I cannot but describe their final report or judgment, properly speaking, as a most perfunctory piece of work. I will now proceed to lay down all the faults which have come to light through this unfortunate accident with a view to their attracting the attention of the railway board. The composition of the members of such a joint inquiry is primarily at fault. Officers who have been engaged all their service in administrative and executive work are suddenly called upon, fortunately on rare occasions, to sit in judgment and hold a judicial inquiry. They have probably never had occasion to take down evidence, and much less to weigh and appreciate the same. Had there been a judicial officer at the head of this committee, I feel sure it would not have swallowed wholesale the cock and bull story about the water in the engine having run short. The result has been that the accused in these two cases have been made the scapegoats. It is somewhat remarkable that the railway police, 
with all the notoriety of the police for getting at the truth of things, should have failed to get at the truth. I can only attribute it to sympathy and cooperation with the railway authorities. The first recommendation I would make is that such joint inquiries be presided over by a judicial officer of some experience, who is capable of weighing and appreciating evidence. The next fault of the inquiry lies in the fact that none of the members ever dreamt of examining the couplings of the wagons which made up the mixed train. I feel sure that if the district traffic superintendent had examined the couplings of those wagons, he would have found that the train had parted. Number four mixed train was 188 minutes, or three hours and eight minutes, late in leaving Urampad. This constant and gross unpunctuality on the part of these mixed trains is the primary cause of such numerous accidents. Why are such delays caused? The desire on the part of the administration for economy, for better dividends for the shareholders, and less safety to the public. The evidence of the Urampad assistant station master shows but too plainly that the Madras railway is undermanned and in consequence has to depend on an excessively overworked station staff. In this instance, the man had at the time been on duty from sunrise till sunrise for four days. Is it then surprising that he should decline to answer Coder when he heard the rumbling noise at the block signal, or when he heard, which he denies, the telegraph needle calling him? I, for one, would be thankful to have some rest after I had secured line clear. End of section 33. Recording by Kieran Metz. End of Criminal Investigation. A Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers, and Lawyers. Volume 3 by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam.